What up, guys? It's JP from the Double Double, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben. What's going on, everybody? Welcome. And the draft lottery happened last night. Me and Ben have been looking forward to this, what feels like for an entire year, uh, just because of Wemby as a prospect. Um, so we're going to hop right into the results of the draft lottery last year. And just we're going to do biggest winners, biggest losers, uh, a couple of, of the fits that we love, and just like our overweight, overall takeaways of the draft lottery. So obviously the first thing we need to talk about is who got the number one overall pick and it's the San Antonio Spurs and they have the right to draft Wemby. What did you think about that in the moment? Obviously they're a huge winner. If if you had to pick between the top four teams, which team did I want to get Wemby the most? I think I'm really happy with him in San Antonio um, playing with Greg Popovich, playing with an organization that knows how to win and doesn't, isn't terrible like they are now very often. Um, I think Wemby's going to be great. The offense for that team next year is going to be bad. Um, I think Victor Wembanyama and Jeremy Sohan could hold teams to like 89 points and then they'll score like 85. Um, the defense has a chance to be monstrous with him and Sohan together, but offensively, they just need more better guards coming into San Antonio. Yeah, what I think is interesting is I think San Antonio had a lot of like C to C plus players on their roster last year but basically not a single A or a single B on their team. Devin Vassell may be a B, right? MB just walk, Wemby walks in as an A+. And I just think that's super, super interesting because now moving forward, the Spurs have their North Star, right? Every move we make from this point forward is to accentuate what Wemby's good at. And I just think that brings so much clarity to the organization. I mean... We see teams like the Cavs right now who have a bunch of young pieces, but they struggle with role players um, because they've just whiffed in the draft uh, for role players. This is the exact opposite for the Spurs. They have role players galore on this team. Like you can see a world where Trey Jones is an awesome point uh, backup point guard for this team four years into the future when they are trying to compete. Or, you know, Devin Vassell, does he become a lower tier like all-star it's possible I don't bet on it but there's like you can kind of sort of see how the vision plays out is Sohan going to be a, a de all defensive team player who knows but I just I love the fit I love that it's Wemby's team the second he steps into the locker room it absolutely is and I kind of have a different perspective on it which is we're about to see just how many of the players in San Antonio actually are C or C plus players like when your team loses basically every game that you play and you're taking meaningless shots, you might look pretty good in some minutes. Um, but we're about to see now that they're about to start winning games and they're about to need impact guys, which guys are going to stand up or, you know, be able to rise to the occasion and who won't. I have faith in Devin Vassell as a shooter, but all-star I think would be a reach or like fringe all-star. I mean, maybe Keldon Johnson is a great role player. Um, they really just need a great guard in San Antonio alongside this group, and they're going to take off. Yeah, they need one more guy, and next year's not the draft to do it, but they have a million assets that I wasn't aware of until Bobby Marks yesterday started going on like um, a Twitter spree of just kind of updating everyone on Twitter of whose assets are in what spot and the Spurs have a ton of picks they've gotten picks from the Hawks they've gotten picks from the Celtics um and all of these are unprotected as well which I think is super interesting which 
you know, if you are the Spurs and you see a young player that you like in this draft, you technically have the assets to get another very valuable pick, um, which is super interesting and just kind of a thought piece from my end. But I, I just want to talk about another big winner, which is just the Spurs fan base and the Spurs organization, because, you know, we went right into how Wemby fits with the team. But think about the franchise. Think about the fans, right? The fans for the next decade know they are going to be in some level of contention or some level of relevancy. There's no question about that. That is such a level of comfort that not a lot of teams get to have. Um, and the organization, like you go from David Robinson to Tim Duncan to now Wembenyama, it's just they are winners like in the highest degree. It's so cool to see this team get another chance. They just get generational big man after generational big man. Um, it is really cool for San Antonio. You saw how hyped the Spurs representative was when he got the number one pick. And for good reason, man, this is about to make San Antonio basketball a lot more interesting. Uh, they have not been a much wa a must watch destination for some time. Um, and bringing Wemby to the team is absolutely going to bring that. I want to talk about the next team and whether or not this is a big winner or this is going to bring some turmoil. The Charlotte Hornets with the number two pick. I think the best player available here is Scoot Henderson. I think he has a pretty good potential to be better than LaMelo Ball, but I don't know who they take. I think they should take Scoot, but if they do, is there a world where there's clashing between Scoot and LaMelo? I kind of love the fit, actually. I said this a little bit last year with Cade and Ivy, like lightning and thunder, just having a change of pace at the guard spot. I think this is kind of that to maybe even a higher degree because um, Scoot is what I kind of see as like a generational athlete in prospect at the point guard position. And he's super explosive and LaMelo likes to live outside. Um, so you can just like see how different they will be right next to each other. Or they can stagger the minutes um, as much as they can and just have one guy running the shop at all times. So I love Scoot to the Hornets, actually. I don't think it's going to be an issue at all. I think that's a great call, honestly. LaMelo Ball is a great catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. Um, and if they're okay taking turns or if you have to stagger their minutes, I think either of those works out pretty well. Um, Scoot is going to be a guy that has to have the ball in his hands almost all the time. So I'm I'm... Because there is the off-ball game to him is a little bit weaker than some other point guards. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what he does when LaMelo has the ball in his hands. But the other way around, Scoot running the show, feeding to LaMelo, I can see that be pre being pretty effective. Yeah, 100%. And I just think, you know, it's really important that the Hornets got a top three pick because it kind of feels like there's nothing to be excited about with that franchise. Even when they have LaMelo, they're horrible. Um, and I think now at least you can say, hey, we have another very, very interesting prospect next to LaMelo. So moving forward, maybe these are two guys that can both make all-star teams and kind of bring us back into relevancy. Hopefully that's best case scenario for Charlotte that it works out that way, but we'll see. But I'm I'm happy for Charlotte fans. I think that's definitely possible. I want to move on real quick to the biggest loser of this draft. Uh, and that's clearly the Detroit Pistons. Worst yeah. record in the NBA, 14% chance for a number one pick, and they fall to five. Um, now, Portland, at number three, is willing to trade their pick. And me and you have talked back and forth about it, and I think Detroit trading up to get into that number three spot would be perfect for them. But if they don't, this has to be pretty 
pretty upsetting to fall to five after what you could have had. Yeah, they're like by far the biggest losers of the draft because I think this team changes drastically if they get Wemby or Brandon Miller, in my opinion, uh, without having to give up assets. Because you mentioned it, like if Portland does want to move out, now you have to give away something to get Brandon Miller. You can't just select him and keep your team how it was. Um, but if you, like just the thought of pairing Cade with Wembenyama, right? I think Cade's going to be like a top 15 guy in the league at some point. I think he will sneak into all NBA teams. And then I think Wemby, like I've said it on the podcast, I'd rather have the next five years of Wemby than Embiid. Like I, or Tatum, like give me Wemby. I just think he's that level of player. Um, So if you put that guy next to a guy who's going to also be making all NBA teams, like you're a contender. Um, And I just think that's, that's what they missed out on. And it sucks. Um, I do think Brandon Miller at three is a spot they could really, they should do, honestly. I do think that's what they should do. I think he's young. He fits next to Cade and Ivy perfectly. Um, yeah, they're by far the winner, uh, losers of this draft. There still is a way for them to kind of kind of find out how to take advantage of this. But as where we stand right now, they are the losers. Yeah, and they could trade into three because Portland is in a bit of a pinch here. They want to contend around Dame. They want to compete so they're going to need to trade away a number three pick for a guy that impacts winning right away. So the thought that we've had Boyan plus the number five pick for the number three pick, I think that's a realistic trade for Portland. I'm struggling to think of how many better options there are out there. And I want to go back to Portland, actually, because we did biggest winners pretty quickly. I think Portland has is a slam dunk winner in this. Um, they had the fifth best odds. They get up to number three. And I think in terms of what they're looking for as a franchise, right? Like they're trying to bring good players into the building and they're trying to trade that pick. The fourth pick doesn't do that in this draft. The fifth pick doesn't do that in this draft. The top three picks do that. Some team will be willing to give you a good player and maybe even assets to get Brandon Miller on their team. Um, so that changes drastically how the offseason goes forward for them. Because like you said, they're trying to get better. And they actually have a trade piece now that's pretty valuable. So I think they're in the biggest winner category as well. I think that's definitely reasonable, man. They're going to get assets for this. They got pretty lucky sliding into three. Are the Pacers a team that could potentially trade up? They're a team with some possibly good young players. Miles Turner is definitely a better replacement than Nurkic. There's maybe a world where they trade up, send them the seventh pick. Um, I'm trying to think of just what trade Portland would want to take the most. And it's kind of too early to tell. Um, yeah. But there's definitely going to be some teams that fell that wanted to rise up to the top four that are going to trade up. Yeah, and I think for Portland, I, I know we're not doing draft, I mean, offseason stuff just yet. But I do think this selection and kind of just the options they can get from this will indicate whether they should move on from Damian Lillard or not. It's going to bring a lot of clarity to this organization once they start shipping that pick and seeing what the offers are coming back. Um, because moving forward as a young team with Shaden Sharp, Anthony Simons, and Brandon Miller as your little trio, that sounds pretty enticing. And if you can get Dame off the team and get one of those Kevin Durant level packages back, like we've seen how that's going for Brooklyn right now. It looks like it looks like they may have won the trade and that's no slight on Kevin Durant, but I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. The assets coming back has reached the over the value of the player you're getting for these superstars. It feels like if Portland can get in on that sweepstakes before GM start to realize, Hey, we're giving up a little too much. 
and you have Brandon Miller, Shaden Sharp, and Anthony Simons, that seems like a pretty good way to move forward to me. I totally agree. I would love to see Dame Lillard in Philly. Um, I think him and Embiid next to each other would be the ultimate version of what Harden Embiid next to each other was, but Dame's the guy who can take the last shot. Um, I would love to see him leave Portland. I think this is a really interesting time for Portland because they've wanted to be the team that holds on to Dame forever. Dame's wanted to be the guy that stays in Portland forever. But at a certain point, like the team and you, like both sides might be better off splitting up for a little bit. Um, If Dame wants to retire a Blazer, I think that's perfectly fine. But I want to see him win. Uh, I want to talk about my best fit. The number one favorite fit that I have in the top five is Amen Thompson to Houston. Um, I've been talking about this for a while. I think Amen Thompson brings an energy that fits perfect with Udoka and fits great next to Jalen Green as a kind of like, take no shit, I'm here to destroy you kind of player. And the fact that he's going to be able to set up Jabari and Jalen Green is very exciting. Yeah, and instantly they become the most athletic backcourt in the NBA, Yeah, which is, I've spoken about it on the podcast before. I think that's a super interesting advantage that they'll have over teams. Um, And they're just big at the guard spot. Jalen Green's 6'6", and he's 6'7", and that's just another advantage. So it's a, it's a super intriguing fit. I also think, you know, in terms of Amen's kind of fitting into this team, he fits perfectly as a Udoka player in my eyes just a guy who's uber athletic and he's going to play his ass off on defense and he's going to run up and down the court as fast as he can. Like that just kind of strikes me as a guy Udoka will love to be able to coach. Um, my perfect fit is kind of a, I kind of already mentioned it, Wemby to the Spurs. Um, just organizationally, they've been known to like draft really well internationally. And, you know, they have a ton of international fan bases. Uh, because of Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, Boris Diaw. Like, we have a bunch of international players that did really, really interesting things for the San Antonio Spurs. Wemby slots in there. I think that actually helps his global platform, which I think is interesting. Um, He's just going to be a really, really nice fit there. And like I said, he's going to be able to cook from day one. So it's not going to be like an Evan Mobley situation where we don't really get to see him try new things. With Wemby, it's going to be him only trying new things. And he'll probably have to be reined in at some point series to be like a winning basketball player. But we're just going to see a overflowing pool of skill from this guy. And we're just going to get to see him cook whenever he feels like it. Yeah, they're going to give him the reins because why not? Why not let him try absolutely anything he wants to try? I think the Wemby to the Spurs thing, an interesting part of that is it's almost better to be an international star that goes to San Antonio because unfortunately it's a very boring city. So if you're someone who's grown up in the United States, you're not going to be excited to spend the rest of your life in San Antonio. And because of the global platform that the Spurs have, I think this is actually a perfect spot for Wembyama. And he mentioned it on the live broadcast that it meant so much to him that they got the number one overall pick because of the history that they have with French players like Tony Parker and Boris Diaw. He just, he grew up loving the Spurs because he's from France and he loved Tony Parker. And I think that's best case scenario if you're a San Antonio fan, right? The guy who's a rookie comes into your organization and says, this is the team I rooted for when I was a kid. I've always wanted to play here. That's music to any any San Antonio uh, fans' ears. Absolutely. Um, so if that's everything, we can move on to game one. Do you have anything to say before we wrap up? I do. I have an overall takeaway from this draft. Okay. And I think 
I think there's just going to be a lot of movement. I, I just think the way the picks broke in this draft, usually we see teams go chalk. Once the draft starts, there's not like a ton of movement in the top five, top seven, top like 10. I think this changes this year. Um, I just think there's teams that are in weird spots like Orlando. They could be a playoff team next year. Are we sure they want to add like another young 19-year-old to their roster? Or like, do they want to package 6 and 11 together and get a decent point guard and say, hey, let's make a playoff push now. We have our guys. We have Franz and Paolo. Like, we don't really need anything else. Let's start making a real contention to be a playoff team. I think there's a lot of teams with like options. And I think that's what makes this year's draft so interesting i think once we come around to draft time we're going to see picks flying up and down especially the portland situation how often do we see the number three overall pick being moved very like openly shopped this early in the conversation like the second the announcement was made portland says we're going to try to move this um that doesn't happen very often the team that i think should try to either move up or move on from their pick is dallas um they were lucky to keep it in the top 10 but I don't think that adding a 10th pick to this Mavs roster is really what's going to be the game changer. Um, if you can package this together with a Josh Green and maybe get a player or some more depth that's a little more legitimate, I think that's possible. Um, early on in our draft process, I talked about how interesting Keontae George to the Magic would be. And it mm-hmm. feels like they could take him at 11. And I thought for a while he was going to be an undeniable top 10 pick. So I'm really interested in Orlando taking a really high ceiling six and 11th pick and then just potentially having a dynasty going forward. But that's the thing. If you're Orlando, like what does two more 18 or 19 year olds do for you? If you're trying to make the playoffs, which they were trying to do at the end of last season, they were winning more games than any other team that was quote unquote tanking. You have, you have a guy who's going to make all NBA teams. Paolo's, nasty he could lead the league in scoring one day and it wouldn't shock me at all and you have Franz who is a perfect co-star next to him it's time to fill in the role players that's what it is so like is that what you're doing here at 6 and 11 or do you get veterans who aren't 19 years old to join I love your- I love the idea of taking Taylor Hendricks at 6 and Keontae George at 11 yeah. I think I love that idea because they need high volume three-point shooters And they need a guard that can really pop. And Keontae George really hasn't proven that, but maybe there's something they can reach there. Um, But I do get it. Paolo's the guy you want to run your offense through a lot. So why not get supplementary pieces? I think Taylor Hendricks is about as good of a supplementary piece as there is. Just young. Yeah. He is, but the whole team's young. Why not build together? Why not, you know, build a dynasty full of young guys that you want to keep all together? Because there's only so many young guys you can keep on a team. Like, not everyone can be young and grow into a star or grow into a role player. And it's like, at some point, it's okay to trade assets for known commodities. Um, That's just how I view it. But like I said, it all comes back to the, hey, a lot of these picks could be shipped. I think the Pistons, we spoke about them briefly. I really think they should consider moving up to three um just with that how that fell out in portland just moving back two spots and getting an asset that could help them win now kind of seems like a win for them as well um so yeah that's just kind of my overall takeaway from the draft is i think we're going to see a little bit more movement than we usually see i think it's possible and there really wasn't much movement in terms of the draft order 
Um, up until Santa or uh, Portland got into the top four, pretty much everything was going exactly how it was expected to go. Um, there were some teams that really wanted to get that top four pick that fell short, and they're going to have to try to do something to try to compensate, to try to get that talent that they wanted. Um, but let's move on, and let's talk about the Western Conference Finals and game one against the, with the Lakers and the Nuggets. The Nuggets got a six-point lead. This was a weird game. The Nuggets came out in the first half and looked incredible offensively, unstoppable. Jokic looked like the best player in the NBA through the first three quarters. And then the fourth quarter, Rui Hachimura being switched on to Jokic turned out to be really effective. Anthony Davis was allowed to roam the paint. His defense was monstrous. He had a 40-point game as well. This was unbelievably fun to watch from start to finish. Yeah, and I think there was a specific thing that lost the Lakers this game, um, and it was the three-guard lineup. That first quarter, the Nuggets just beat the shit out of the Lakers all over the boards. I think Jokic had, or the team, had six offensive rebounds in the first three minutes of the game, and they were just too small because Davis is going to rotate and try to block shots, and then when he goes up for a block shot, Jokic is right there waiting for the offensive rebound, and it just killed them a ton throughout the first quarter. This was a really, really weird game because the Nuggets were up by like 17 or 18 at one point and Jokic was frying. And I was like, all right, well, this one's over. Jokic kind of cools off completely in the fourth quarter, basically does nothing. Um, And the Lakers just storm back. Anthony Davis balls the hell out. 40 points, 10 rebounds, three assists, zero turnovers. And then he has three steals and two blocks as well. And we know how just people feel going into the paint against this guy. Um, This was a weird game. Really, really strange watch. This was a fun big man back and forth, which you don't see in the playoffs like this very often. Um, Jokic can't do a thing to stop Anthony Davis, but Anthony Davis really isn't stopping Jokic either. He he did block his shot a couple of times, but Jokic got to where he wanted to get to most often, more often than not. Uh, One of the weirder things that I saw that I hope they adjust pretty immediately in game two, Jamal Murray guarded LeBron James way too often. So many times they would switch that Aaron Gordon and Jamal Murray screen and put Jamal on LeBron. And there is no world where Jamal Murray is able to do anything. LeBron backed him down and got easy buckets time and time again. Um, Jokic certainly wasn't a great defender today, but a lot of the buckets that were scored on Denver were not entirely on him. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, he was a horrible defender. That's that's how I kind of saw it. I I can't get over it. I kind of done I've done my like Jokic, you're awesome rant on here um, over the last few weeks. I will never enjoy watching him play defense. I texted you. It literally makes me physically ill watching him contest shots because it's the most lackadaisical, least effort thing in basketball. It's like D'Angelo Russell level contests. Um, it's hard for me to watch. And I do think like, you know, I saw four or five times maybe where LeBron's just in the paint and all Jokic does is just slap his hand through the air and don't, doesn't leave his feet, doesn't get off the ground. I do think like in the, if the Lakers are in the paint, the ball is going in the hoop. That's kind of where I feel right now, but it's, it's one of those things where Denver's three point shooting is going to allow them to put 130 points up per game. Um, so I, I don't really know if I sympathize with your argument there that it wasn't Jokic, uh, 
I think if you go back and watch those LeBron highlights, you'll see how many of them were scored over Jamal Murray. Um, If you go back and watch, he's getting past Jamal Murray, but then there's Jokic being a traffic cone in the, in the lane. I, I, I mean, certainly Jokic is not a great defender, but I would go back and watch LeBron's highlights through that game. But the defense in the fourth quarter is really what led the Lakers comeback. I mean, they really fought hard the whole second half. This Lakers team is not a team that gives up. Austin Reeves is a massive shot taker, big time shot taker. He hit five threes in that game. He really looked excellent. There were a lot of times where the defense collapsed and he just hit the open shot that they gave him. Uh, This is not the Lakers are not a team that's going to shoot 46% from three very often, but that's really what kept him in this game. That and Anthony Davis being an absolute monster. Yeah. And I think this is weird because I think this is kind of the Lakers maxed out on offense. I don't know how they perform much better than what they did in game one. Um, I kind of scheduled in a W for Denver in game one, just because of the altitude advantage. We've seen it kill teams um, this entire year, really where teams come into Denver and Denver's used to it and the opposition is not. And then Denver wins the game. So I kind of scheduled this as a win, but for the Lakers to be as efficient as they were from three, from the field and from the free throw line, it kind of doesn't feel like they can do much better than what they already did. So it's going to be, it's going to have to be a defensive um, uptick for the Lakers moving forward. Yeah, both teams shot 55% from the field. Both teams shot above 56 or 46% from the three-point line. Um, It's it's, it's all offense, and it's not really possible for either of them to get better. So is this just a case of whichever team's cold is losing? Yeah, and I honestly do think that's what it is, and my bet's on the Lakers going cold before the Denver Nuggets. Um, It's not – and I did – I texted you last night about just Denver's defense. I think it's gross, but – does it matter is kind of the thing that I'm coming around to because I've had issues with it the entire season. And, you know, they beat the shit out of Phoenix and they beat the shit out of Minnesota. And maybe I was like, Hey, maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's not a big deal. I I just can't wrap my head around. They're going to outscore everybody. It doesn't matter if they let someone get 126 points on over 55% shooting because they do it on 57% shooting. Um, this team is just an offensive hub and offensive juggernaut. And I don't know. It feels like the matchups moving forward. I texted you this and I don't want to project, but are there teams better than the Lakers that can take advantage of the Nuggets weakness? And I don't think so. Like the Nuggets are the most paint dominant team left and even they're losing to the Nuggets. Um, So yeah, it's super interesting on just how I view this team and how I view team building moving forward because it's just they are the anomaly they are yeah I think so out of all of the playoff games that Denver has played so far I think they've put up under 110 in three of them um this is a team that puts the ball in the basket very effectively and for as much as you can talk about their defensive weaknesses when you watch the offense it just flows it flows so perfectly They really did get slowed down in the fourth quarter, but through three quarters, they really were just generating every open look that they could. Every time there's a disadvantage, they take care of it. They take advantage of it perfectly. Yeah, and I I think something that I'm going to be looking out for is like, will Jamal Murray perform this way the entire series? I'm not sure. Um Because the way I'm viewing this is like Jokic is going to do what he does every single night. LeBron is going to do what he does every single night. And then it comes down to Davis and Murray performing 
up to their ceilings because when those guys perform to their ceilings, they're incredible, but they're known to go missing from game to game, both of these guys. So this is just going to be a really interesting series of like consistency for the star players and just adjustment. I, I talked about the small lineup for the Lakers. Darvin Ham stuck with that way too long, way too long. He just kept trying it, kept trying it. And I get the, the thought process behind it where it's like, if we can get Jokic on the move and if we can get these like fast guards blowing by Jokic and just taking advantage of him not being able to move laterally, totally understand it. But when you see your team getting decimated on the glass, you got to change something up. And he just didn't. He stuck with it for a really long time. And I think that honestly kind of put the Lakers at a big disadvantage. I think you're right. Uh, Jamal Murray is definitely going to struggle to score 31 points a game. But there's a lot of shots that he can get to with the Jokic two-man game that are going to be open game after game through this whole series. Um, the pick and roll, when you have Jokic in the post and you run that mid-range look, they get that mid-range look to Jamal Murray that they ran a couple of times, it's really impossible to defend because Anthony Davis cannot step out on him because that just creates an easy mismatch. It's really, there's so many tough angles that the Denver Nuggets have to score that are just, it's impossible to cover them all at the same time. Yeah, when you're facing Denver, it's more like you're sitting in geometry class than you're playing basketball. It's like you literally have to watch out for all these different angles, all these different like passing entries, all this weird shit. Jokic made a few passes last night that didn't even amount to anything that literally just kind of confused me <laughs> because it was like that ball isn't supposed to fit in that window at that spot of the court. And he does it so regularly that I think it kind of just takes teams off guard. Like it, one specific possession I'm thinking of, the Lakers figured it out, but then it created a an open shot at the other end. And I was like, he's just, he is just a chess master. And I think we have two of the game's best thinkers ever in the same series facing each other with LeBron and with Jokic. Um, I do anticipate seeing more LeBron running pick and rolls and forcing either Jokic to switch or Murray to switch on him more and just kind of abusing that. That's kind of been the MO of LeBron's entire career. We saw it through all the finals runs against the Warriors where he pulls Steph Curry out to the perimeter and just dust by him because he's so big and so strong. I think he's either going to bring Jokic out to the perimeter or keep bringing Murray out to the perimeter. We'll we'll see, but I'm pretty sure that's what's coming. I think you're right, and they need to adjust to that pretty quickly. It kind of felt like the Nuggets were okay giving LeBron his looks. Um, for whatever reason, they just wanted to do as much as they could to slow down Anthony Davis. And I know LeBron is hurt. And we kind of talked about this with the Lakers Warriors series. If you just give him looks that he wants over and over and over again, you're going to get burned. Like that is not a strategy that works. Yeah. Um, obviously, if Anthony Davis is playing like this, the Lakers have a shot to win every game. And the fact that they clawed back after being down 21 is really impressive. But if Anthony Davis disappears for a game, there's no world in my eyes where the Lakers win it. Yeah, and I think both of us had the Nuggets winning. I don't know if we ever went on the record formally and told the listeners that, but I think we both had Nuggets in six. Yeah. Um. So, you know, we both anticipate the Nuggets winning this game. But if Anthony Davis is going to put up 40 pieces semi-regularly and LeBron's going to give you the 26, 12, and 9 that he's pretty prone to do, that's a pretty good recipe to win some games. Um, I think this series is going to be a little bit closer than I, than I thought, just based on how the Lakers fought back. Um, but 
this is just such a weird series because it's also like is Contavious Caldwell Pope gonna drop 21 points again in another game or is that just the best KCP game of the series in game one and then the Nuggets win by six points like you know what I'm saying yeah but is Aaron Gordon gonna score 12 again maybe not you know he's gonna score at least 12 but that's the thing about this Nuggets team is wherever there are uh, advantages they find him if KCP needs to take as many shots as he did fine sometimes that's Michael Porter Jr. Uh, we saw against the Suns, they didn't have big bodies to throw at Aaron Gordon, so he was getting a lot more looks. That's just what this team does, is they find weaknesses and they pick them apart. Yeah, there's a lot of sliding doors with the Nuggets, right? Like, if you stop one guy, hey, look, Michael Porter Jr. just had a 15-point quarter, and then, you know, they figure it out that way. With the Lakers, like I mentioned earlier, it does kind of feel like they've maxed out their offensive output in game one. Like, I meant, we'll go down the list here quickly. Anthony Davis, 40 points on very efficient shooting. LeBron James, 26 points on very efficient shooting. Austin Reeves, 23 points on very efficient shooting. Rui Hachimura, 17 points on 8 of 11 from the floor. That's all those players exceeding or living up to their standards. Like, do we trust D'Angelo Russell to have a huge bounce back game? No. No. Do we expect Dennis Schroeder to really kind of make a massive impact? No. So it's like... How much left is there for the Lakers to kind of get out of their lineup when it when you go to the opposite side in Denver, you're like, all right, Aaron Gordon could probably have a 25-point game this series. Or Michael Porter Jr. only scoring 15, that seems a little bit low. He could probably have a 30-point game this series. That type of thing is what makes me feel confident in Denver winning the series. Um, but the Lakers, they put up one hell of a fight. That's That's absolutely the story. Anthony Davis looked awesome defending the paint. Um, I don't even think we read out the stat line for Jokic in that game. 34 points, 21 rebounds, 14 assists, 12 of 17 from the field. Phenomenal game from him. Phenomenal game from Anthony Davis. I'm excited to watch the Lakers at home because I think Denver's taking the first two games. The fact that the Lakers brought it so close, I can't see him doing that again in game two. Yeah, I think it's found money that Lakers win game three, but I do think Denver wins both of their games at home. Denver has been a home juggernaut this entire season. Um, And whether that's the altitude advantage or because they're a really fucking good team, who knows? Probably a mix of both. And we know that, you know, the cliche role players play better at home. It's just true. Like KCP dropping 21 points at home, that's not a surprise to me. Um. So if KCP's playing up a level, you know, Bruce Brown played great. If all these guys are stepping up at home and Jokic gives you a nice 30, 20, and 15, you're probably going to win. So, yeah, this this team's very, very dangerous. I don't think the Nuggets have lost at home yet this playoffs. They haven't. Um, and the Lakers are another dominant, dominant home team. So this may be a story of just going back and forth and winning each other's floors or winning winning each other's home games. Um, I'm excited for Lakers game three, but I do feel like Denver takes this series in six. And I feel like just the shooting and the offense is something that the Lakers aren't going to be able to match game after game. Yeah. The, the Lakers would have to find a formula that no one else has found. Yeah. And that's, that's a hard thing to bet on. Um, so yeah, I think we lean in the same way. Let's talk about heat Celtics just a little bit before we get out of here. So the first game of Heat Celtics is on tonight. 
who do we have winning tonight? How do we think about the series in general? What of our what are our expectations um, just moving forward with this with this matchup? I'm feeling confident in the Celtics in game one. Uh, we talked about this pretty in depth the last episode, but I think the biggest thing for the Celtics going into this series is can you take this team seriously from the jump? Um, if you're watching Denver Lakers, then you know that's a series that might take a while. That could be a seven game series pretty easily. Um, if the Celtics can wrap this up quickly and get some time to heal, get some time to rest, that would be great for them. Um, I'm really interested to see what the Miami defense looks like. How are they planning to slow down the Jays? Yeah, I, um, I proclaimed my somewhat fandom of the Celtics coming back a little bit last podcast. Then I see a Twitter highlight <laughs> saying that Malcolm Brogdon thought the practice was lazy and sloppy and Al Horford had to address the entire team to get their heads back into it. I'm like, this team just hates basketball. They just happen to be crazy talented. I think they lose game one, but still win the series in six. I think that's fair, man. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes with the Celtics, but this is an issue that we talk about time and time again. Um, I do just expect the talent to be overwhelming. Um, without Tyler Hero, Tyler Hero is a guy who kind of cooked the Celtics in some past games. Uh, without him trying to rely on all of the undrafted talent that they have, it has gotten them this far, but you're about to see how big of a difference the Knicks and the Celtics are. Like yeah. the Knicks were not as good as they played in round one. They were not a dominant monstrous team the way the Celtics are. I think that's fair. I think what's interesting is the Knicks had a, like a legitimate guy who was cooking the entire playoffs and Brunson, like Brunson was just on a roll. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the Celtics have had that guy. I mean, yes, Tatum obviously just had the 51 piece, but the game before that, he looked like Tobias Harris. So um, it'll be interesting. I'm I'm very, very interested in how this first game plays out. I would love for the Celtics to just win it and like make this a quick series. But I just think, you know, from what we've seen from this team, I think they like when their backs are against the wall almost. So I think it, I, I think Celtics and six is kind of what I'm, comfortable with i feel confident that they'll win game one and lose game two um they're definitely dropping one of the first two games um and i think that's fair to bet on but i just don't know how what is the game plan for the miami heat to beat the celtics is it a defensive showing where both teams score under 100 and miami ekes out a victory um is it you know more heroics from Max Struess and Caleb Martin, like what is it that leads to a Miami victory? Probably just Bam being like an actual good offensive player when he chooses to be. Uh, he's he's a little strange. He's been kind of phased out in some playoff games this year where it's just like you can't really see his offensive impact on the floor at all. But like I've said, we've seen him perform against the Celtics before. I went back to last year's stats when he performed uh, played against the Celtics, and he didn't really perform. But in the bubble, he cooked the shit out of the Celtics. So maybe the Celtics feel comfortable against that matchup more than I thought they would. But then it comes down to, is Jimmy Butler going to start scoring like he did in the Bucs series, or is Jimmy Butler going to score like he did in the Knicks series? Because if he's just Knicks Jimmy Butler the Celtics win like probably pretty quick, but if he starts ramping it up again, if he starts putting up 35 point games and shit like that, he's, he is the best player in the series when he does that type of stuff. Yeah. It will be interesting to see what the Celtics defensive strategy looks like because the Knicks, 
Yeah, you know, for as much as you can say about their offense, despite Jalen Brunson, their defense is awesome. Their defense is physical as hell from the tip to the end of the game. Um, Mm -hmm. The Celtics don't really have that level of defense in them. And I think that's a big reason why Jimmy put up the numbers that he did. So it'll be interesting, man. Jimmy Butler could average 36 points a game for this series and just be the only thing keeping the heat in it game after game. And I, I, I'm curious about the Rob thing again and how that, you know, affects Derek White moving forward and how it affects just starting lineups. I know we mentioned it a little bit with Jordan, but like, is this just the recipe they stick with the rest of the way? Or is this view or was that viewed as an adjustment just for the Sixers? Um, and then they're going to move back to putting Derek White in the starting lineup and shit like that. I'm very interested by that. And that's a Joe Maz call, right? On like what he chooses to do. Um, I don't know. I mentioned that if Kevin Love's out there, I think Rob Williams's impact is kind of diminished a little bit. Personally, I'd like to see Derek White in the starting lineup again tonight. Um, do you have any opinions on that? Or, um, I Joe Mazzulla has already said Rob Williams is starting for game one. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> taking out the mystery a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah, so we'll see how that goes. But I do agree with you in the sense that with Kevin Love out there, we talked about it last episode. Um, Grant Williams might be the guy that's more suited to sit out there during those minutes than Rob. I just feel like Rob is, we've talked, we talked about it literally all last year. Rob, what makes him so special is when he can sag off shooters and just be that roamer role that Ime created, right? And if Kevin loves sitting in the corner, you cannot just like randomly walk around and wait till someone ventures in the paint. That dude can catch fire. And he will win a playoff game if you're giving him wide open shots. Like he'll go five for seven and just win a game for the Heat. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. Personally, I'd like to see Derek White out there. Um, But he's the head coach, right? So. Yeah. And he'll experiment. Well, he'll probably, if Rob Williams in the starting lineup doesn't work, we'll probably see Derek White thrown in there. Um, There'll be some different looks we'll have to throw out there because Kevin Love is such a interesting, unique player because he is such a negative in so many aspects, but in the corner three-point shooting and the outlet passes, the outlet passes can really burn you. Just a couple of those outlets and easy buckets in a game can really burn you. Yeah, and even like above the break threes, like on fast breaks, he'll just walk down the court. Your whole defense gets set up to protect the paint, and then he just bombs a three from 30 feet. It's annoying as fuck, and it is team-breaking sometimes. The thing is, is... You know, if Kevin Love's playing significant minutes, I better expect to see Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum make him work on defense over and over and over and over. And if they do that, Celtics are going to be in pretty good shape because he has probably the worst feet left in the NBA at his age and his mobility. So, yeah. And and if you're looking at the guard pairings for Miami and you're looking at Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, Kyle Lowry, all of those guys should be worse than Marcus Smart, Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon. Should um, be. Should be. So we know how well the Heat are able to play and how much they're able to play to their absolute ceiling. Um, but if things go the way they should go, then the Celtics guards should be more than enough to overdo the Miami Heat depth. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is going to be a really fun series. I do. I am a little scared of just playoff Jimmy kind of showing back up again. This is the team that he lost to in seven games. People like to forget that it literally was a shot away from the Heat going to the finals 
rather than the Celtics. It was really, really close last year. The Celtics have gotten better and the Heat have gotten worse because Tyler Hero is not playing. But just that guy, he has like crazy determination and will. And I think if any guy can kind of just put the team on his back and make things difficult for the Celtics, it is Jimmy Butler. Yeah, the question on who is better for this series, Tatum or Jimmy, I don't know if it'll decide the fate for this series because even if Jimmy's better, there's a chance the Celtics, I mean, there's a good chance the Celtics win anyways. But it'll be interesting to see, man. Jason Tatum had the last five quarters that Tatum played in have been incredible. If he brings that momentum into this series, you know, it's hard to imagine games where Tatum has an efficient 30-something point game and the Celtics lose. Yeah, I think you're right. If Tatum plays up to his standard, then he the Celtics are basically un, impossible to beat. Um, I saw something before we go. I want to ask you this. I saw something on Twitter. The betting odds right now for the Celtics to win this series are in, insane. The Heat are virtually 0% chance winners in terms of the eyes of Vegas and in terms of analytics. Um, ESPN put out a nice graphic. The Celtics have a 97% chance to win this series. Um, do you think that's like diminishing the heat at all? Or do you think, is that how you view it as well? Where it's like, this is the Celtics 97 out of a hundred times. I it's, it's hard. Cause I'm definitely a biased Celtics fan, but <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Uh, I don't think because we talked about it like with Tyler Hero fully healthy. They were a team we didn't want to play in the first round because we didn't want to have to have a six or seven game series. Not right. because we were worried about getting knocked out, but because we were just like we knew the Celtics weren't going to be able to play to the a good enough effort to sweep the, the heat. Um, but talent wise, it's Jimmy Butler. It's whatever Bam decides to be. And then it's whatever Eric Spolstra can squeeze out of the no name players on the heat. Um, I, it is a little disrespectful to all those guys and what they've been able to do so far. But without Jimmy going nuclear, I don't see a world where the Heat even compete. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, but it did remind me of last year when the Celtics were given an 86% chance to win the finals. That didn't work out great. Um, so it, it's just it kind of made me think of that again, where it was like 80 86% chance isn't 100 is a thing we have to keep in mind. There are always going to be scenarios where a team has a 90% chance to win a game and they lose. It doesn't mean it's 100%, but I get you. When you're up the way the Celtics were up in the finals, I think it's reasonable to say the Celtics have a very, very high percent chance to win, even though they did. That was before the series started, though. They were given that chance to win. 86. They were just viewed as like the overwhelming favorites, just the better team through and through. And then they lost. And I think that's how we're viewing them against the Heat, too. I agree with that. But it does kind of does kind of give me some PTSD from last year where it's like Celtics fans feel very comfortable. And even I was listening back to our podcast with Nate from the preseason, and he even admitted like he thought the series was over, like up until halftime of game four. Like he just thought Celtics were going to have a parade and it didn't work out that way. So. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I hope it doesn't get into the heads of Celtics players, um, and, you know, because we've talked about whether or not they care enough during these games. Um, Boston media is always going to say that the Celtics have a 104% chance of winning the finals every single year. So, you know, it's it's the expectations that you're kind of expecting in Boston. And I think what's funnier is like, I'm more worried about 
Jimmy Butler hearing about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, we only have a 3% chance to win. And then he just goes and does something incredible. But I think that'll wrap everything up for us here. We have Nuggets in six, Heat in six. Uh, Celtics, not Heat in six. Oh, Celtics. Yeah, Celtics in six. <laughs> um, and just a final goodbye on this podcast. Wemby's going to be like actually incredible. I, I don't think people realize how high I am on this guy. Um. I'm like stupid high on him. I think everyone obviously believes in his talents, but I just think like immediately he's a guy that just completely changes your franchise. Like the second he steps into your building, you'd be like three years from now, the Spurs will be title contenders in my eyes. It'll Um, be interesting to see how quickly San Antonio goes from being unwatchable to must watch TV. It may be as as soon as game one of Wemby's rookie year. That's how I view it. Like they, this, whatever team landed Wemby was going to jump in my like league pass ratings for next year. And they jumped super high into the list because like I said, with LeBron, right? The second he stepped into the league, you just knew you had to watch this guy throughout his career because it was something special. That's how I will be treating Wemby throughout his entire career. I will be trying to watch as many Wemby games as I possibly can from night one till the end of his career. I am really with you. And I think for anybody that's worried about his body, he is about to have his own personal bulking chef following him around for the rest of his life, putting putting on more muscle. He's 19 years old. He's only going to get stronger. It's a great place to be for him to be in San Antonio to grow his career. Yeah. And the San Antonio Spurs just built a half a billion dollar training facility just this off season too. So it's like, it worked perfectly um ben anything else to say before we get on out of here i think that'll do it thanks everybody for listening in we'll catch you later peace